I'd like for you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. Now, this is going to be an interesting message, so you need to kind of listen carefully. Um, we are doing, um, continuing the series on the worldview, biblical worldview, and uh, we have today and actually one more Sunday, and we'll finish. We're going through, in a way, the four major stories or accounts of Genesis 1 through 11. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations. If you want to remember what's found in Genesis 1 through 11, just say that. Creation, fall, flood, and the nations. And you'll get the four major stories that are there. But these are not random stories. And certainly, it's not random to understand the biblical worldview. Uh, the book of Genesis is seriously important for our understanding about what God is doing in the world and what we need to know about his character and his compassion and his love for us. And particularly how eventually it turns out that we need a savior like Jesus who dies on the cross for our sins. And the foundation is set in a biblical worldview from Genesis 1 through 11 for the rest of the entire Bible, and it's important for us to understand this, this, um, this um, worldview. God created us, he made us in his image. Uh, mankind fell by sinning against the Lord, sinning against God by choosing to eat of the fruit. Um, then the escalation of that sin, as if you can't put the genie back in the bottle and Pandora's box is opened up, and not only did it uh, result in disobedience to God, but it resulted in the first fratricide, the killing of brother to brother. And we come now to a time that the world explodes with sin, and God is upset and saddened by the fact that the every thought and intent of the heart of the human creatures that he made in his image were sinful and corrupt. And so God has a problem on his hands. And this problem is important for us to learn how he solves it and how we can live in that way and understand his compassion and the love for him. The big question at this point around chapter 8 in uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is whether or not there can be a return to the garden, a return to paradise. Can mankind on his own, have victory over sin, as God told Cain that he could, that if he did well, that he would defeat sin or rule over sin, but if he didn't do well, then sin would basically rule over him. And it turns out that mankind cannot win over sin. Mankind does not have the ability, the spiritual strength, to be victor over sin in and of themselves. We are sinful people because of Adam and Eve and their regard or disobedience to God. And once sin enters into the world, it doesn't just stay as a little bitty part of it. It seems to take over. And that's what's happening. So God is upset that the world has become corrupt. And every thought and intent of the heart of the individuals that he created are corrupt. Now, there are a couple of people who stand out. For example, I met a little boy yesterday whose name was Enoch. And we have an Enoch in the, in the Old Testament. And 
chapter 5, and we're told that Enoch walked with God. And he didn't die, apparently. God took him. But he walked with God. So that phrase of walking with God is important. We also learn about Noah. Noah is said to have been an individual who is righteous, and he has, he's blameless, he has integrity, and the scripture tells us that he also walked with God, and God chose him to go through this ordeal that we call the flood uh, for that particular purpose. He was a righteous individual, but it still is this question, can mankind win the victory over sin? Is there a return to paradise? Can we go back to the Garden of Eden where God sent and stationed the cherubim with the flaming sword to keep Adam and, and Eve from going back there? Is it possible? And that's a question that mankind has to answer because there are individuals in our life today that talk about mankind being genuinely good. And mankind does things based not upon their own heart but normally based on their environment. The reason why this person did that is their environment. The reason why somebody did that one is their environment. They don't have enough money or they don't have good climate. And all of this thing creates situations where mankind struggles. But the Bible asks the question, is it the culture or is it the individual? Is it something in us that creates the problem? and not the environment around us. So once we could get back into Eden, we'd be okay, we'd be perfect, we'd be back to where we need to be. But the question is, can we get back there? And this is the dilemma that the flood seems to address, indeed it does, and then we have to address as believers in Jesus Christ is what we need to learn about in the understanding of our biblical worldview. Now you might have um, a view of what happened in the flood. Generally, I can think of three views. One we're going to talk about. The first view is that, you know, God was a really nice God. He knew a flood was going to come. And so he went and told Noah. Noah built that big ark, you know, and gathered all of the, the wonderful creatures. And we have the picture of Noah f uh, followed by all of these animals going two by two into the ark. And he built the ark and put his kids in there and his wife in there and the dove in there and they floated on the waters and then it receded and everybody got out and had a party and it was all well and good and that's sort of what we teach to people the essence of the flood is Noah building the ark and getting saved by God because he built the ark but that's only one view and that doesn't tell the whole story the second view is that the flood is a story about a very mean and nasty and terrible God because when you stop and think about it, the flood didn't just happen, God made it happen. And so God's a, a sadistic kind of God who wants to kill all of the creatures that he made. And he's, he's terrible, he's nasty, and he's mean, and he's angry, and he, he kills all of these innocent people. Except for Noah and, the and his kids and the animals in the ark, God saves them, but... He's still a mean and old nasty God. Now that's, that's one view of Noah and the flood and the ark. But it's again not the whole story. The whole story I want to tell you this morning is what we really need to learn from the flood. What we learn for our understanding of the biblical worldview and what we picture and understand that God is doing 
in the midst of the circumstances and the particular problems that he's faced at this point in time and how through all of it he makes a different way uh, for us that we need to hold close to our hearts. It's uh, somewhat what, um, what Jacob read uh, out of Isaiah, but it's a biblical understanding of the text and what it means as we look at it after the flood has ended. So I encourage you to turn with me to chapter 8 and uh, verse... Uh, actually, we're going to start in verse 15, but 20 is good. And here we have uh, 8.20 through 9.17, and here we have the after-flood account, what is taking place. And we're going to revert or refer back to what had happened before the flood, but basically we're going to be reading about what took place after the flood. So in chapter uh, 8, verse 15, uh, through uh, 22, number one, we're going to start with the understanding that we serve a God. In other words, God is someone who retains compassion. That even in the midst of this story of the flood, God's heart is in the right place. God's desire is right. God's will is correct in trying to relate to the people that he created and uh, that he placed in in the garden and on the earth. So in verse 15, uh, it tells us after the floodwaters receded, after they all went away and the dove didn't come back and they were able to come out of the ark, God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you, bringing out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, I'm going to make comments as we go through this text, but this tells us, this is the command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden when he created. He, he said to Adam and Eve, and to all the animals, be fruitful and multiply. So when that comes back up, that's a reminiscent or a remembering of what God originally charged Adam and Eve and all the animals to do. It was a blessing. In fact, we're told back there in Genesis 1 that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's blessing comes back onto Noah and all of those animals. So he, he isn't a nasty, terrible God, mad and angry that he killed because he killed all these people. He actually did it for a purpose, for his will to be continued, the will that he had in creation, which was to make us in his image and to bless us. So he's blessing now Noah. You can kind of think for a little bit of time that Noah is the new Adam, okay? Think about that. All of a sudden, God is starting over again, not just with Adam and Eve, but Noah and his wife and his sons, and they're going to start over again. So can you start over and eradicate the problem? All right, be fruitful, multiply. So verse 18, uh, so Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out, all the animals and all the creatures that crawl and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, uh, by their family. So now we've got the end of the flood. Everything has been destroyed. I mean, all the animals. And now we have the ark resting and, and Noah and his kids coming out of the ark and all the animals and everything's fine. They're out of the ark. But here's what takes place. So in verse 20, 
uh, we learn that Noah begins to worship God, perhaps because of gratitude. I mean, they've been, on, I don't know, penned up on the ark for all that amount of time and, and with the monkeys and, you know, with the llamas and they spit at you or the alpacas or whatever. I mean, Noah's probably pretty much happy to get out of the ark and the duties of the ark and be on dry ground again. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and already as planned, because God had said, you know, we think of two by two, but he actually took two of certain animals and seven of other animals, the clean animals. And God had told Noah about this. He wanted the clean animals to be that that he uses to give God uh, glory and honor. And it goes, it harkens all the way back to creation again and all the way back to um, the fall when we look at it. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. See, what, what Noah's doing is worshiping God. And he takes the innocent animals and offers some of them. He hasn't killed all of those animals off, but he takes some of those animals and he offers them to God as a sacrifice of gratitude and thanks. And that takes us back to creation, uh, especially where uh, after the fall, God takes the animal skins and makes clothes for Adam and Eve and where Abel brings of uh, the firstlings of his flock and the fat from them. This is all kind of in one type of way that they're worshiping God and the connection that's coming. And then... It tells us that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, literally it says, he said to his heart. He said in his heart, God said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease. Now that's a little bit of a piece of poetry that goes in there to, for God to say, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to go back to my original plan, which he did in creation, which is to make day and night and the signs and the season and the year. He's going to go back and the earth is going to go back to the time in a way that he made creation with these new people. But there's a problem. And the problem is, what would God do? If he is a just God and he cannot stand sin, what does he do with a world that's full of sin? What does he do? Well, one option is start all over again, right? Except he didn't create a new Adam or Eve. He just took Noah, who was righteous and blameless, you know, and he walked with God. He took him... And he made a new Adam and a new family. And he destroyed the whole earth, made a flood, destroyed the whole earth, and then started again after the flood waters receded. And so we have this statement, this idea, this moment in time where the question is, well, did it work? Was that the answer? Did all God have to do is destroy everybody that he made, his entire creation, and start over again? And the thing about it is that God is certainly someone who is right to be angry and to be upset because all through this statement, if you go back and read this, it's clear that the earth had become corrupt 
because of the people that God created who sinned against him, had corrupted their thoughts and their intentions, and they continued to do that. They continued to do that. If you read through the beginning of the creation account, it's clear that God only embarks upon this method of trying to solve the problem because all of the people were sinful, except for individuals, few individuals like Enoch and apparently Noah. Note this phrase here. I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Remember, he did curse the ground. He cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground. But he says, I won't do that again, even though the thoughts, the very thoughts or inclinations of their heart is bad, evil, from the very youth onward. Sin has corrupted them. They have followed sin. They have chosen to follow sin. And it has totally corrupted them. Even though I was just and right to bring the flood upon the earth, God is saying, I'm not going to do it again. I won't do it again. I'm going to decide in my compassion not to put the earth through that again. I will never, ever curse the earth again because of the human beings. Something else has to be done, but it won't be a flood again. It won't be a flood. I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. I think God saying this tells us that we have a God who is compassionate. That God realizes that it didn't work. And we're going to see this play out in the flood and the aftermath of the flood in the nations. We're going to see how all of a sudden sin comes roaring back with all of its intensity and power and evilness and tragedy and create problems. As a matter of fact, I think the second fratricide in a way, just like Cain and Abel, is when Noah curses his grandson Canaan. And that's killing him in a way. That's saying that he's worthless. And it's sin just rearing its ugly head. And God knows that that will not stop it just to kill off all the humans and try and start again. So God has to choose another way. And the working out of what he does here in the rest of these verses hints and gives us the understanding that God has got a plan. He has a will and he's going to do something, but he wants us to remember what he's going to do in a special way. So that in the biblical worldview, as we understand it, we can see God already pointing to the real solution, the solution that really solves the problem. But we have to read through the account here to understand that we do have a God who retains compassion. He's not an ugly, nasty, terrible God who gets honor and privilege and, and excitement in killing off the creation and destroying it that he did. He realizes that for a moment, as Isaiah said, he turned his eyes away from his people, from the creation, but he is going to come back to it. So what does he do? Number two, we serve a God who requires justice. Now, what's interesting about this is that we get here in these verses, 9, 1 through 7, a whole lot of creation terms. So it's like a return to creation. But God is going to place a stipulation upon this a requirement upon this that shows that he requires justice, appropriate justice. But also we understand that he's moving from the concept of destroying a whole creation 
to making an individual responsible for their own actions and their own sins. So God's seeking to narrow down the problem of sin to where it starts in an individual's heart. And we begin to see God stating some of his requirements for Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, for Noah and his children to live. Just as he did, by the way, for Adam and Eve when he told them that they can eat of anything in the garden except for one tree. Well, here's what God begins to say. In verse nine, it's, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it starts out and says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. Now notice again this creation terminology. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear, now the problem though, is that the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the flesh of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Now, before in the creation, they weren't so much afraid of the humans, all the animals, but they were put under the mankind's rule, and, they were, and mankind was to do them and take care of them and work the garden. But here comes a different thing. Before, God told man that he could be a vegetarian. He could eat of any of the fruits, any of the vegetation, and exist. But now, all of a sudden, what happens? God has already killed innocent animals to uh, forgive or to clothe uh, Adam and Eve and for Adam, uh, Abel to give a worship, uh, an offering to God. And Noah killed some of the animals to give God an offering. So this is what God says. Every, verse 3, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I have given, I have given you everything. See, so now all of a sudden mankind's diet in the menu gets bigger. Other than green, green plants, all of a sudden, any animal can become food for you with one stipulation. And that stipulation, he says here in verse 4, however, um, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Now, what does he mean by that? Don't eat a live animal. If its blood is in it, drain it out, you can cook it and you can eat it. But don't eat a live animal. And the reason is, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human or a brother, which the text literally says, murders a brother, I will require that person's life. And then we have this little... Um, uh, a little piece of poetry again, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in what? In his image. Back to the creation account. See, can we go back there? Reminding you that you can now take and eat animals, but don't eat the blood. Let it be drained out. Let it be cooked. But if anybody sheds blood, including humans shedding human blood, God says, I will require it. In other words, God will punish it. He, they, these people can live in a lot of different ways, but the stipulation that comes out of the flood is that God is a just God who will require human life to be sacred, to be special. Because, he said, humans were made in God's image. Now, what God is saying here is that you shall not kill. 
You shall not murder. You shall not take innocent life, human life. Because God made humankind in his image, it becomes sacred to God. In the biblical worldview, this would be, should be sacred to us as well. And there are a couple of things that make this sacred, including being against abortion, taking human life. But there is the truth here that God is someone who is compassionate and he's willing to start over and to rebuild again. But there is a stipulation and that stipulation is not to take human life. Because in some way, some way that sometimes mystifies us that we don't quite understand completely, God has made us in his image. And he loves us for that. And he thinks that we are worthy enough, and we're going to find out that he showed us that, he, that we were worthy enough because he gave us his son to die on the cross for our sins. So we are to treat each other the same way. We are to treat each other and not take human life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. This is actually a justification for capital punishment. It's the only real solid argument for capital punishment in a society to take the life of someone else who has shed the blood and taken the life of another human. In verse 7 he says, but you, and he's speaking by the way, uh, it's a plural you. He's not just talking to Noah here. He's talking literally to Noah and his family and all the animals, everybody else. You do what again? Again, back to the creation blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over all the earth and multiply on it. This is interesting. This will be the goal of God to bless every humankind and animal is to give them fruitfulness, that they may multiply, that they may fill the earth that he created for that purpose. To be a place for us to live and all of God's creation to live there. This is kind of really powerful and important to understand because it comes right down to the fact that there will be a reckoning now. But the reckoning, think of this, is not going to be God destroying the whole earth. But the God is going to come and request a reckoning and seek a reckoning for the individual who sheds human blood. Now what's kind of interesting here is that this word reckoning uh, that we have here um, uh, that talks about uh, later on too about the reckoning is the word to search. And God is going to search out the individual rather than to do it to all. So now all of a sudden, God is not just going to punish the whole earth, but he is going to come down to the individual in whose heart there is sin and who murders or takes the life of another. So we serve a God who retains compassion. We serve a God who requires justice. We also serve a God, number three, who relates. This is important for us to understand in the flood that God here is is not just getting his jollies and his happiness by killing everybody in the flood. He's saddened that he did that, but he's going to change his plan or tell us a little bit more about his plan 
that's going to take a way in which we relate to God and God relates to us. So this section here is very important because God is all of a sudden telling us that he is going to relate to us. He's not going to sit up there in a rocking chair having nothing to do with us, just watching us, as one popular song says. And he's not going to be the kind of a God that certain deists, uh, individuals who admit that there is a God, but they figure he's out there somewhere and doesn't care about us. Deism is a German view that came out of the Enlightenment that said God may have started the creation, but once he started the domino falling, he hasn't, any, he hasn't done anything or doesn't have anything to do with us. So you might believe that there is a God, but he doesn't involve himself in human life, in the affairs of mankind, or in the world. But here we're going to see that God does do that, and God all of a sudden puts himself in a way where he has some human characteristics where we see him creating things and relating to us, and also we are going to see him actually remembering things. So God wants us to understand a little bit about his character here and how the modus operandi or the method of operation is going to be with, with people after the flood. So let's take a look at these verses, verses 8 through um, 11. Then, verse 8, God said to Mo and his sons with him, Look, he literally says, look, I am making, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that is, are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, here's a couple of important statements here. God uses the term covenant twice. And he is indicating that he's using this word covenant to mean that he's making an agreement with us. He's making a relationship with us. You can't have a covenant by one person only. You have to have two parties to it. Uh, two parties because a covenant is like a contract. It's like an agreement that you make with someone else and you're supposed to do certain things and they're supposed to do certain things. That's what a covenant is. And this is what God is doing. Imagine God who created the earth, sovereign ruler of the universe, deciding that he's going to make a covenant with you. He's going to make a relationship with you. He's going to come down and say, okay, I'm going to do this and you do this and everything will be happy. We'll be all wonderful and copacetic and everything will be kosher and we'll live happily and peacefully ever after. Isaiah talked about it being the covenant of peace. God relates himself in the covenant of peace to relate to his people. And that's what's so unique and so important here to realize all of a sudden that God is making a covenant. Now, some scholars talk about God making a covenant with Adam, and they call it the Adamic covenant or the Edenic covenant way back there. But the term covenant is never used there. As a matter of fact, the term covenant is the first time mentioned right here in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, in these verses. Then he says pretty adamantly to Noah, he says, Look, verse 9, I am going to establish a covenant with you. 
I am going to establish a covenant with you, and it's going to be an eternal covenant. It's going to be with you and your descendants. Everybody who comes after you, this covenant is going to be there. And I'm going to establish this covenant with every living creature and with the birds and all that, all the animals that came out of the ark. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you, and this is what I'm going to do. I will never again, never, 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 never again bring a flood on the earth and to wipe out every creature. There will never again be a flood to wipe out the living creatures. Now, this covenant is a little bit more, a little bit more one-sided in terms of the stipulations uh, that we get here because God talks about what he's going to do. The implication is that the part, what we're supposed to do is to try to live with him, to walk with him, relate to him, not kill human innocent people and, and uh, shed lifeblood or eat the lifeblood when we eat the animals. But God's part is pretty clear. There will never, ever, ever be a flood. He uses this term twice. He begins with it and says, look, I'm going to make this covenant. And you want to know that this covenant will never, 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 never allow the waters to come up from below or come down from above and flood the earth and destroy all of creation. I'm going to make that covenant. And this is important that the flood will never happen again because God now decides that he's not going to go sit up in a rocking chair, maybe drink some uh, tea or something and watch the earth go crazy down below, but he's going to relate to it just like he wanted to relate to who? Adam and Eve, and he comes to walk in the garden in the coolness of the evening. Do you remember that? And that's when they all run and hide, Adam and Eve hide, because they hear God coming and they knew they were naked. But God wanted to talk to them, to relate to them, to be compassionate with them, to care for them, to help them, to meet them. And that's what's so unique about our God. We have a God who wants to make a covenant with us, a relationship with us. He hasn't just pushed you aside to let you go your own way. You're not out there striving and scratching and trying to get things done. Brother Steve talked about it. It's the will of God and our hands helping him and he creates and he accomplishes his purposes. He wants the world to know that there is real peace, but the peace is in knowing him, in relating to him, being involved in his covenant. Yes, there are stipulations that God says he will do. And yes, there are stipulations that say that we're supposed to do something. We are supposed to walk with him to follow him, to seek him, to know him. God wants to establish that kind of a covenant and he's going to move that covenant all along through the Noahic covenant, the covenant that he gives to Abraham, the covenant that he gives to Moses and the people of the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, the covenant that he gives to David, the covenant that he announces through Jeremiah called the new covenant. And even when Jesus takes and lifts up the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. I know that our texts say the New Testament, but a testament is a covenant. Jesus is the bringer of the brand new covenant. The covenant that satisfies, that fulfills, that completes all of God's plan. And that was for Jesus to hang on the cross and give his blood shed for many for the remission of sins. That we might come 
to know God in an intimate, powerful way, far more than we ever considered or thought because we come to know him through his son. And through his son, God reconciles himself to us. That's God's plan. We find this in the last part there. We serve a God who remembers. This is what God is going to tell Noah, and it's going to open up the door for us to understand exactly why he's mentioning this word covenant. Now, in this section, he uses the term covenant five times. In the whole unit that we're looking at, it's seven times. In the previous one, in number three, he mentions covenant twice. But he mentions covenant five times in verses 9, 12 through 17. In fact, he begins with the covenant and he ends with the covenant. And he talks about the covenant in the middle. So you can look at this passage and see this. So he says here, and we used to think this is, oh, this is nice. We see the rainbow, right? So this is what God says. And God said... This is the sign I am of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all the generations. What is it? I have placed my bow in the skies. The covenant is for everybody, forever. And what is it? It is the rainbow. I, will, I have placed my bow in the clouds, verse 13, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me And between the earth, everybody, the land, it will be a sign. Listen, the rainbow has been so co-opted because everybody thinks, oh, all the colors of the rainbow, all the diversity and everything that we're supposed to accept. But they missed the point that it was God who created that. And the covenant isn't a sign for us to get along with everybody. It's a sign for us to get along with God. Remember that. God wants us to live with him. He wants to live with us, relate to us, have a wonderful plan for our lives, have a relationship through his son Jesus Christ as we live out that new covenant with the stipulations that it entails serving Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that's what God is interested in. Verse 14, whenever I form the clouds... Over the earth, and the bow appears in the clouds. 15, then I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. See, he's not going to just do wholesale destruction and corruption and mess. He's going to deal with individuals and his covenant. He will see it and remember, and there will never be another flood on the earth. God is going to solve the problem. Why did, what was the flood for? It was to try to eradicate sin, to get rid of sin, to see if we could get back to the garden, to see if we could get back to paradise. But it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen a different way. I will remember my covenant. There will be no more flood. And as a matter of fact, there will be a permanent um, marker of the covenant, a permanent covenant between God or an eternal covenant, everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. Verse 16, the bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember, remember, God remembers the permanent covenant between, between himself and all the living creatures on the earth. Then look at verse 17 as he finishes this out. And God said to Noah, this this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me 
and every creature on earth. This is almost word for word what he said in verse 12. So he reminds us, it's the covenant, guys. It's the covenant. It's what I want to do. I want to relate to you in a covenant. I want to relate to you in that way. So the question remains, and it still has to be discussed, because we don't know. Is Noah going to be able to withstand and conquer the power of sin in his life? And the answer is no. Is there a return to paradise because God wiped out every creature and started over again with Noah? No. Did the flood eradicate sin? No. So what is God doing? God is moving from the majority of destruction of the majority or calling the majority to account to coming down to each individual. Every individual will have to deal with their own sin and their own response. The penalty for sin went from all the earth to the individuals who sin. This is God's plan. This is what God is doing. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but they were born of God. So you have to be born again. You have to come to God. You have to enter into that covenant with him. Jesus makes that covenant possible. The new covenant that was the sign is the cross, that Jesus died on the cross and God raised him again on the third day. The sign of Jonah that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and Jesus would be in the belly of the tomb for three days. But God will raise him up and we have to come to know him. Our salvation comes from coming to God in that kind of covenant. In John chapter 3, we read truly in verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless we come to God and enter into that covenant with Jesus Christ, we cannot be born again. If we read in chapter 3 of John verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and you know this verse, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to destroy the world like at the flood, but to save the world through him, anyone who believes in him is not contend, condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. See, what God is doing as a result of the flood is changing a little bit of his tactics. His tactic, he understood, and people could argue from the foundation of the world he planned this. But the flood will never come again. And he makes a covenant with Noah. The flood shows us that we serve and we have a covenant God who remembers, who wants to relate to us, who is just, but he also shows us his compassion in making a new plan, in making a plan that will eradicate sin, that will gain the victory over sin, that will help us to become faithful servants of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
You know, we cannot win over sin. We are sinners. Even if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're still a sinner. But God gave us the power of the Holy Spirit to have the victory over sin. And when we come to know Christ and believe in Him and give our hearts to Him, then the Holy Spirit helps us. He gives us the power to withstand the temptation of sin, to do the good things that honor God, that please God, that help us in our walk with God. And the flood shows us that this is the kind of God that we have, one who loved us enough to make a plan for his son, the only thing that could defeat sin. But that God is still just and he wants us to come to him. But it's our decision to come as he opens up our hearts and as he saves us. And it's a relationship that he wants to have and God remembers, always remembers that he gave us his son and we can walk through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think this is important to have a biblical worldview, and I hope that we'll recognize how great and wonderful our God is. We're going to ask the musicians to come and help us sing How Great Is Our God is our last song, our invitation song, our worship song. And we offer to you the opportunity to respond. If you're looking for a church home, to come and join with us. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you might come and let us share with you what the scripture says, that you might come to meet this wonderful God who was willing to give his very own son to die on the cross for our sins. Won't you come as we stand and sing, How Great Is Our God?